0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Duncan Macargo. I'm director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I'm a professor of political science here at the University of Copenhagen. It's my great pleasure today to be joined on the Nordic Asia Podcast by one of my distinguished predecessors as director of NIAS, Jörn Delman, who's recently retired as professor of China Studies at the University of Copenhagen, but remains extremely active in the field. Jörn Delman, welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. So this is a, a great pleasure. I know that a lot of your life and career has involved China. Maybe you could tell us something about how that came
1: about. Yes, I I was born in the 1950s, so I grew up in a family with no tradition for talking about international affairs. Never heard about China and nobody sort of inspired me to think about China in any way. But incidentally, at my school, when I was at high school, the chairman of a Danish party, the People's Socialist Party, came Mm. around. And he used to be a pupil at that school. And he had been the general secretary, I think was called, of the Danish Communist Party for many years right in that capacity he visited china in the late 1950s and he actually wrote a book about his experiences and he amongst many other things he talked about this experience when he came to the school and i thought, him hey, that sounds interesting mm-hmm. i thought i of course i had some information about china i knew what was that something was happening in china it was different in in many ways from what happened in the in the soviet bloc in eastern europe and uh, I was not particularly attracted to that, but still I was a young man. I was sort of on the left wing and this chairman of this new party actually represented some some of the ideas that I, I liked to hear at that time. So I thought, well, it was quite interesting. Maybe I should do something about China. And then right. I wrote a. A paper in history, I think about China. I've forgotten what it was about, but it was the f- first time ever that I thought about China in a more systematic way. But then I, I put it away again and put it on the shelf. And uh, I decided to study English language and literature mm-hmm. because I came from an Anglophile family for obvious right. reasons. My parents had been young people during the war, and there was a general Anglophile mode in Danish society at the time. So I thought that could be interesting. So I came to university in '69. Just mm-hmm. after the uh, student, uh, so called student rebellion had started happening in Paris in 68, in Copenhagen in 68, I was at Aarhus University and was an active left wing at the university. I got very attracted to their activities and got involved in student politics, maybe on, more on the margins than at the center. And I felt that the, the political atmosphere at my department was quite conservative. Mm-hmm. I tried to engage in some of the activities in the department, but really was very conservative, very English conservative english mm. so uh, after finishing my ba i decided i wanted to do something else and of course in the student movement uh, there was a big debate amongst the Maoists. those who were leaning towards the soviet bloc or soviet communism and then let's say the free thinkers on the left wing mm-hmm. the critical marxists and all of these people and i was somewhere in between the free critical marxist thinkers and uh, and the maoists So I realized that we could actually study Chinese at the University of Aarhus. So I decided I wanted to go there because then I could learn the language and and Mm -hmm. go to China and find out what was really going on. So this is how it came about. So I studied from 72 to 79 and I went to China for the first time in 77 and with a few fellow Danish students and we came to study modern history at Peking University, I wanted to study political economy because that's what I wanted to write my thesis mm-hmm. about, the introduction of Marxist political economy into China. But at that time, that department, the economy department was closed at Peking University to foreign students, so I couldn't mm-hmm. do that, so I had to study modern history. It was a very interesting year because it was the time when the campaign against the Cultural Revolution was launched at Peking University. Mm-hmm. Teaching was very boring, and of course, at that time, we had Come to realize that the Cultural Revolution was a lot more than what we had heard about in Denmark, had many more sinister tendencies and movements and events and episodes that we didn't like to hear about. So, in a way, we had to completely reformulate our own way of thinking about Mm -hmm. China, not only at Peking University, but but even before that. But certainly at Peking University, we got acquainted through the campaign against the Cultural Revolution with a lot of tragic and traumatic personal histories yeah. of academics in the different departments who had been criticized, some of them had committed suicide, some of them mm-hmm. had died themselves. So it was, in a way, an enlightening experience for me to be there at that time. Right. Yes. Now, those, those were heady days indeed. And as
0: somebody who also made the, the shift from studying English literature as an undergraduate to Asian studies, I can relate to to that particular journey that you've undertaken. Can you tell us something about the moments in your career that you found the most exciting
1: and stimulating? Well, I've worked with China for, for 50 years. I, I worked and lived in China for 10 years. I was there as a student, but I also worked there for international development assistance for many years, out of which uh, I lived there for nine years. I worked for the UN, for the EU, but also for other development agencies. And during that period, I worked mainly from the top down. So mm-hmm. I had a lot of different projects around China, especially in the 1980s and the 1990s. And I primarily worked with um, rural development, agricultural development. And of course, all the work I did was organized by authorities working mm-hmm. in the rural sector. So Minister of Agriculture, Minister of Forestry, a number of different agencies. And then the UN counterpart, which was the Moff I think it was called at that time minister of foreign trade they've been assigned as a counterpart to the un system and other bilateral donors also multilateral and bilateral donors so i learned to know the bureaucracy quite well and also the way it worked mm. in, in a way i felt that i worked in the chinese bureaucracy from the inside because a lot of my colleagues came from the ministries so i often went to the ministries i went with them on travels i was received by provincial authorities and of course i was in a powerful position in the sense that i represented agencies that came to work with china on promoting change but we also came with money and there was a great interest in china during those years to learn from outside and this maybe was one of the highlights of all all these experiences that I understood that there was a curiosity, the drive for knowledge in Chinese society that I had never realized was there before because Let's say in our, our study programs, we had learned that China had been closed. It was not interested in what was going on outside China ever since the Ming dynasty, in fact. And all the efforts of the Chinese empire was to keep the foreigners out. Right. And suddenly right. We were, <laughs> I was there right at the beginning and they only oh. wanted to talk to foreigners and learn from foreigners. Mm-hmm. And I organized a lot of different experts from UN agencies in in many different fields to come to China to give advice and to organize courses. And so this was a really uh, quite enlightening period for me. But I also came to do a a lot of fieldwork and uh, I visited lots of farmers, especially, and enterprises associated with agriculture. And in a way, I got this bottom-up perspective also and i think this laid the groundwork for my focus on wanting to do fieldwork as as a researcher also later on and clearly you got the perspective of a bifurcated chinese society with an officialdom that had its own vision of what china was where it came from and where it wanted to go and then people on the ground who who just wanted to solve their daily problems and who had always been used to fend for themselves you could say what i also realized was that there was a immense sense of the need for entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And not only amongst the farmers and the people working in rural areas, but also amongst local bureaucrats, I was quite surprised by that because I had Mm -hmm. learned to understand that the Chinese bureaucracy is quite ossified and is not very active and not willing to engage with society. Rather, they wanted to control society and so on and so forth. And and in this sense, I, I realized that there was a dynamic between state and society that I had no prior knowledge about, and I think this has been one of the driving dynamics of China's development since 78, that the party state is actually also quite entrepreneurial and in this way can engage with society in, in, in driving common projects, but also supporting private enterprise. And what I also learned through my work was that there was a great thirst amongst people in rural areas for organizing themselves. So they had been through the collective movement, they had set up the cooperatives, later the people's communes, they had collapsed, and now they were alone, so to speak, (laughs) on their own. And they wanted to organize again. So uh, a lot of the work I did, especially in the 80s, was about organizing farmers, trying to introduce the experiences from, from Europe, especially Of course, from my own country about the role of farmers' organizations, how they could organize themselves, but especially how they could engage in a kind of Mm. social contract with the state, which meant that they would be allowed to take responsibility for their own development, their own fate, without threatening the state. But clearly, this was not on the cards in, in China. So farmers' organizations right. were looked at with a lot of skepticism, especially if they were going to be independent. And eventually, um, I think our efforts, and I'm not only talking about myself, we work with a lot of different Chinese mm-hmm. organizations on these issues, led to some disappointment in the sense that the Chinese state could not really give up its control of, of these organizations in rural areas because experience had told them that any new regime, any new New empire in China in any new dynasty actually uh, arose from peasant revolutions. More or less, that was the general experience. Then I think the the fact that you were allowed into, especially in the 80s, everybody was open, you were allowed into people's homes, you could talk to them in the past, in the 70s, it had been extremely difficult to visit people at their homes. But now suddenly everybody felt free. I got a lot of friends, I could join their circles, we could discuss almost anything. Of course, they they knew Mm -hmm. that. Certain issues were critical, but they were not centered in the same way as Chinese are today in their interactions with foreigners and especially if they discuss sensitive issues. So in that sense, I I learned a lot about what I would call the, uh, the soul of ordinary people and how they thought about their own life, but also about how the dynamics of this state society interaction could drive a lot of development in China. So these are some of the highlights. Of course, there are many highlights, but but I, I think these are quite fundamental to the way I've been living and working with and understanding China. Yes, no, it's always hard to pick out what what the highlights
0: are when uh, one has such a a long and and, and varied career. You've mentioned you know, about this opening up that, that in various ways China was was open and was opening up during that period. Do you think this is still the case, or do you feel like over the past ten years or so China has gone in a different direction, embarked on a somewhat different? journey from this gradual opening up that started I guess with the normalization of relations with the US Mm -hmm. and most Western countries in the early 70s.
1: Of course there's this issue of decoupling that is being discussed a lot. Can China decouple again or can the West decouple Mm -hmm. from, from China? I think that that's not possible. I've been to China when it was closed, and mm-hmm. I mean, we had severe limits on our movements. Up till 1984, you could not move out of Beijing without a travel permit from some official agency. I remember when I was a student, I traveled a lot on bike in Beijing. North, yeah. if you moved out of... You would come to a sign not far away from the university that said out of bounds for foreigners, so you could (laughs) not go any further down that road. And you would never know why it was impossible. In a way, when all these restrictions were taken away in the 1980s, you felt completely free in China. You could go wherever you wanted to go. You could talk, as I said, to anybody you wanted to talk to, and people were really keen on talking. I think this was a very phenomenal development. And seen in this perspective, I think there has been a change in recent years. Of course, I've mainly been focusing on the changes in China in relation to what I do myself. But I note a lot of restrictions on the freedom of speech in China, on academic freedom, and they seem to be tightened all the time. Just the other day, China's leader, Xi Jinping, he was at Tsinghua University, one of the leading universities in China, saying that people working in the universities, the students should be both read and expert. This is a reminiscence of the Cultural Revolution. Although yeah, some yeah. people would say that during the Cultural Revolution, it was better to be read than being expert, right? But yeah. being both read and expert clearly says that there are limits on academic freedom. There are limits on freedom of speech because you have to prove that you're loyal to the Communist Party. So there's increasingly academic censorship in China. It's difficult for foreign researchers to work mm-hmm. together with Chinese researchers unless you work on non-sensitive issues. So if you look at the record of the University of Copenhagen, we have a lot of people collaborating with Chinese researchers in, in health sciences, and other hard sciences, but not in humanities and social sciences. And have never been a lot anyway, but now it's become even more difficult. So I think, yes, there's more control. There's more restrictions on academic freedom in China, also on personal freedom, I would say. Mm-hmm. And this leads to a lot of more self censorship both in China and amongst academics outside China. And at the same time, I feel that China is is so important for the world, so important for the future of the world, that it seems silly that we should not be able to work with Chinese, go to China and do research. So I think we should continue fighting for our rights to do that and to do it together with Chinese colleagues. And it would be detrimental to our understanding of China and actually to the future of the world if, let's say, the truth about China should only be presented mm-hmm. by China itself. Right. So I think we, there's a challenge there that we have to seriously consider. But I also realize that it can put constraints on what we want to do and how we can do it as academics. Right. No, and enormously difficult problem. But as you
0: say, to, to remain engaged and to continue collaborating is so incredibly important in, in mm. these times. And it also seems as though your career sort of corresponded with a golden era for China studies, with the opportunities that you had that might be harder to replicate for people that coming into the field at the moment.
1: I think actually we only we only laid some foundation. The golden era is ahead of us. Oh, that's good to know. It's so more important for the world. And and, and, actors from China engaging all over the world in all aspects of our lives. So it becomes more and more important, I think. Absolutely.
0: Yes. I've already mentioned that you used to have my job. You served as director of DS and you were director of the Institute at a very important time in its history. Can you reflect a bit on those experiences uh, with the benefit of a little hindsight?
1: Yes, I, I was there from 2001 until 2009. And in a way, I, I was fortunate in being hired more as a manager than as mm-hmm. a researcher. In yes. 2001, it was very clear from my job interview that the board of NIRS at the time wanted somebody who had management experience and who could sort of give a direction to the institute because it had been through some turbulent times. Yes. And I did have some research background, of course, let's say a small track record in, in research. But quite limited in my personal opinion, because I had been working with international development assistance, both as a consultant and later as a manager for many years. And and I think it was really my management background, combined, of course, with this limited career in research that was attractive to Neosport. They thought that there was a need for a clear strategy for, mm-hmm. for Nias in the clearer Nordic perspective. So the stakeholder community did not want to see Nias as a competitor, in, in, mm-hmm. especially in research. Rather, they wanted what in the system is called Nordic Nude or Nordic Nude. Yes. Right. That is, NIAS had to position itself where it could be seen as, as a natural hub that could support the development of Asian studies in the Nordic region, and bring Nordic and Asian researchers together. So that was our mission, and I think the board was quite clear about that. At the time, NIAS already had some solid services and to the Nordic communi- Asian studies communities, and was well known in, in the Nordic Asian studies communities. So in a way, it had become a familiar institution so I think what we, we did was to bring NEARS into the 21st century, you could say. So we established a new and clear research profile, although with more limited research resources mm-hmm. than they have been in the past, and focused more on the services. We organized annual Nordic research conferences, we supported PhD education, we published a lot of books every year through NEARS Press, streamlined and structured our services, and our library services, um, became extremely important for the Asian studies communities Mm -hmm. as we gradually could take in Asian language resources, which the universities in the Nordic countries would otherwise not have been able to do. And of course, they are critical to sustain Asian Mm -hmm. studies. We created a, a new communicative profile to enhance our brand value, so to speak in the Nordic community. And I realized when I started at Nias, I, I had not had any contact really with Nias before, but Nias was already a brand when I, I started. Mm. And not only in the Nordic countries, but actually uh, around the world, you could say. Yes. It seemed to me that any Asian researcher at that time knew what Nias was. Right. And I think to some extent it also related to the fact that we had this public publishing house, uh, the Nias Press. Right which was very active in publishing good Asian studies research. So all of this happened while we organized the stakeholder community in the Nordic countries into what we called the Nordic NEARS Council to ensure that we delivered what they wanted. And altogether, I think we got around 25, 27 Mm -hmm. universities and research institutes in the Nordic countries to join. So we got a very strong argument that we were actually producing Nordic usefulness. Because none of the other Nordic institutions had done anything like this. There was a demand for our services, you would say, and was proven because these stakeholders that became members of the Nordic Nears Council actually wanted to pay a contribution to what we did. But at the same time, we also were merged into the University of Copenhagen, into the Faculty of Social Sciences, because our Nordic owners, the Nordic Council, wanted that. This was good in some ways because we came under a more strict management regime, you could say, an administrative regime, but it also sends uh, mixed signals about our independence to our Nordic partners. So we continuously had to negotiate, let's say, the brand that we didn't become a brand of the University of Copenhagen, we were still a Nordic brand. So at the end of my tenure, it was quite evident that it was difficult to keep up with the funding needs. Nordic funding declined. They kept cutting our core funding. And we did get a lot of independent funding, but not enough. And of course, not enough to sustain a continued research mm-hmm. environment. So the research profile of years was weakened during those years. I, I think we had good researchers, mm-hmm. but overall it was weakened. But I don't think our Nordic stakeholders actually minded that because at the same time, they were becoming stronger in Asian studies. So they were really looking for years as a provider of different kinds of services. During the period, I participated in a lot of interesting research projects and consulting and service projects also. And I managed to bring my own research career to life again, you could say. And uh, incidentally, one of my own projects that related to state business relations in China in 2007, I worked with a Chinese colleague to do research on a, on a politically active entrepreneur in Hubei Province, China. I was sort of interested in state business relations at that time before I'd been interested in state farmer relations, but I, I sort of moved my interest. And this this person was very active politically in, in China and he, he went to jail at, at a certain point for, let's say, criminal accusations against mm-hmm. him, but clearly because he was politically too active and too critical of policies in rural areas in China. But he, he managed to be released and he came back to his enterprise. It was not closed down or sold off, as it often happened at the time to others to sort of quell this critical voice. And we took a perspective of individualization and sub-political agency as a guide for our project. The project led to publications, also in Chinese, and actually mm-hmm. one of them, in a book that was edited by this entrepreneur himself and published by the State Council's Research Center for Reform. So, in a way, he had been become accepted by the political establishment again, but then last year, he was arrested again. And I just got a call from an, a journalist from South China Morning Post the other day who wanted to interview me about this uh, person and, and his mm-hmm. history. And So I'm, I'm going to do this on Friday. And I think it's interesting how your research career can also follow or your research results can, can actually lead to this kind of engagement with the press at a much later stage. And I've seen that with a number of my research projects that they also lead to a lot of dissemination, you could say, in the press, which I, I find very interesting. Yes,
0: now I've had similar experiences myself, and I must say that many of the things you mentioned in relation to to NEOS, you obviously set up a lot of the structures that we're operating with at the moment at NEOS, and many of those same questions and dilemmas about the balance between services and research and, and the different stakeholders still very much alive and with us today. One of the things that's really intriguing for me as somebody who's moved rather recently to the Nordic region is, I keep getting the sense, I'm sure it's not just my imagination, that... People in the Nordic region feel this special kind of affinity with or interest in China and sort of vice versa. Where does this kind of almost emotional connection between the Nordic region and China come from?
1: Well, I'll try to give you an explanation. I did my PhD in, from 1988 to 1990 and I looked at the agricultural extension system in China and. One of the external examiners on, on the PhD thesis was Tony Sage, who is now a professor of Chinese politics at Howard. And he said at the time, uh, you know, you Nordic foe seem to have a special way of doing China studies with lots of fieldwork. I think that, that was true. I think this curiosity came out of the left wing critical turn at the universities in the 60s. So we got interested in society. And in the 70s and 80s, people went to China and threw themselves into the Chinese melting pot. And they did that from Denmark, but also from other Nordic countries. And everything seemed to be possible at the time, as I've just talked about, and you could talk to anybody, you could travel anywhere, you did not need research permits, and you seemed to be able to do almost anything that you wanted to do. This is one part of the explanation, I think. Then in the Nordic countries, we also have a a long historical tradition in Sinology. And we had some very good Sinologists in in the Nordic region that were trained by the grandfather of Synology in the Nordic countries, Bernard Kalkain. But then in, in the 70s and, uh, and the 80s, we set up our own area studies programs, and uh, they seem to be quite attractive to students. And the language was the key, so I, I think this has also been important for the development of the interest in China in the Nordic countries, that there has been a strong emphasis on the need to master the Chinese language. So uh, even more than that, as far as Denmark is concerned, I think there has always been a strong interest in China, at least for Mm -hmm. the last 300 years. And we've traded with China since actually the 17th century, late 17th century. We had a lot of cultural contacts also when the missionaries went there. A lot of people wrote and talked about China over the actually the hundreds of years. Then later the communists and left-wingers were interested in the Chinese revolution and the experience with building a socialist society after 49, like myself, people mm-hmm. traveled there out of political interest. Then came Danish investments, imports, exports, tourism, new cultural exchanges. And all of this actually is people-to-people exchanges, right? So I think the, the foundation for the Danish interest in china is built on these people-to-people exchanges where of which let's say the academic exchanges have not been that important until recent years but these people-to-people exchanges set a a strong foundation for the academic exchange and also the ways we do our work and personally for example i work with a lot of danish companies who who wanted advice on how to do things in china and and all of this i think my all of my colleagues have been doing this in many different sectors And at the same time, we had no competition. So the Mm. disciplines, as we call them, (laughs) social science disciplines, were not really interested in China. And nobody bothered about China until recent years. And it has been very difficult for the disciplines to actually bring up people who also master Chinese. There have have been people, of course, but they don't get employment in the disciplines, at least not in my university, which I, I find quite strange, actually. Because the American model which we have modeled our area studies mm-hmm. on, is that you need a good disciplinary background combined with the language competencies in order to study a specific region or, or country or aspects of it. So I think there are many reasons for this particular affinity to China. Right. Yes, it is a, It is certainly an interesting thing. And that
0: very strong language tradition clearly is is somewhere at the core of it. You've worked on quite a wide range of areas academically. Where do you think your most important academic contributions lie?
1: Well, frankly, I'm I'm not so sure. I think others should judge about that. But I could say that I'm convinced myself, and I think it's true, that I I was the first to apply the fragmented authoritarianism (coughs) theoretical Hmm. framework which was developed by two famous American political scientists in 1988, uh, Libertal and Oxenberg. I applied that to a full-scale study of the Chinese bureaucracy from top to bottom, and upwards again, this was my PhD project on agricultural extension, which I undertook from 1998 to 1990. And secondly, I've studied China's agricultural reforms intensively, I've written a lot about them. Especially, I was interested, as I said, in farmers' organizations. So actually the institutional framework of the agricultural reforms. Thirdly, I I took up Chinese climate and renewable energy politics uh, quite early back in 2007, actually on assignment for the Nordic Energy uh, Agency, which is uh, another agency under the Nordic Energy Research, under under the Nordic Council. And from, from then on, I had a primary interest in China's climate politics with a focus on renewable energy and energy politics in a wider sense. So I moved from there to study energy governance in China, also at quite a, an early stage. So I think I've contributed something to understand the way that the Chinese party state is adapting itself to a highly complex political agenda. But I, I think that my academic work has also helped my consultancy work and, and vice versa. Mm. So I've been yes. project director of a number of large-scale development projects that were in need of some sort of turnaround. And I think I achieved that through collaboration with good colleagues on the ground in the countries where they were in China in Russia in Peru. I also worked there in Mozambique. And I think that my academic experience helped me a lot to achieve that. And then I have used those experiences in my teaching also. So in that way, let's say the two legs of my career have been fruitful Mm -hmm. in benefiting each other.
0: Right. There's a lot of complementarity there and how your various interests have, have come together technically you retired you uh, recently but i know in practice you remain extremely active what are you working on at the moment
1: well my long and ongoing interest is really state society relations in in china and political change so i'm still interested in that i'm following chinese politics and especially within my the areas that i'm i'm concerned about climate politics and energy politics, but I've also taken an interest in the Belt and Road Initiative and its, its green uh, dimension, so I think I'll continue working on that also. And then, of course, I'm associated with Think China that I established yes. together with colleagues at the University of Copenhagen, I think eight or nine years ago now, right? and mobilizing the resources of on China and those working with China in the university into a I call it a kind of think tank, because we are not organized like a think tank. But I think effectively, we have a lot of people who work with or, or know a lot about China who can benefit to Denmark's relations with, with China. So this this is one of the primary purposes of think China is to bring to the attention of the outside world, especially in Denmark, the resources and the insight we have at the University of Copenhagen.
0: Absolutely. No, you clearly can Lots of lots of things going on here. Yeah. Are you optimistic about the future for China studies?
1: I think at, at the University of Copenhagen, we are, we are doing quite well for the time being. We have a big program in China studies. And I think it's really the customers that make the decision, you could say, so, so as, as, as long <laughs> yes. as we have students who are interested in China, I think we are doing well. And I don't see any change there. In the past, we could see great fluctuations, actually, in the interest in China studies. So some years... Numbers were very low, and then they, they came up again. Right. But I think now it seems to be quite stable. So I think we probably have the size and the number of experts who will be able to sustain this program. I think, of course, the challenge is what is happening with China, the, yes. the relations with China, that's one thing. The other one is what, what happens at the disciplines, if they will really ever take up China as a core interest in the social sciences, So I think maybe in the future, we will see a need for stronger collaboration between the disciplines and the China Studies program to maintain the quality and also to maintain the the scope of these programs. But I think it's possible. So in that sense, I'm quite optimistic. I know there are colleagues around the world that are less optimistic about the China studies programs. But I, I think for the time being at the University of Copenhagen, especially because we are placed in, in a department that has a number of these area studies programs, I think right. I'm quite optimistic about the, the future. Also for the employability of the candidates. So as long as the, the students are interested, I think we, we can sustain
0: I think that's a great note on which to end this conversation. Thank you so much, Jørn. it It's been fascinating to hear about all your experiences with China, your time at NIAS, and your thoughts, especially about the future of China studies in the region. I'm Duncan McCargo, I'm Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and Professor of Political Science here at the University of Copenhagen. And I've been in conversation with Jørn Delman, the recently retired Professor of China Studies here, also at the University of Copenhagen. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.